I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Last month, the uh, studio cask recording of a new work, Clico, a revolutionary musical, was released. This Friday, the 14th of April, the EP will be out, and it'll be a great way to hear six pieces from the new musical by the uh, creative duo Lizette Gladowski and Richard C. Walter, who wrote the book, as well as the music and lyrics to the piece that chronicles a love story set amidst the French Revolution. At first, it was an arranged marriage for Barbe Nicole Clicquot, Ponsardin, who married uh, Francois, who dreams of taking his father's wine company international. They decide to take the risk of running a business, but there is turmoil, thanks to the Napoleonic Wars, as well as Francois' unexpected death. Several historic figures, like Bonaparte himself, intersect with Barbe Nicole's, as well as Jean-Rémy Moet, who wishes to uh, unsettle our uh, heroine's plan to continue the wine business. Lizette Gladowski joins me now, and I'll ask her about what drew her to this remarkable figure and the process of writing a show like this from the ground up. She is a composer, lyricist, performer, choreographer, and educator. She received her MFA in musical theater writing at New York University's Tisch School for the Arts and her BFA in musical theater at East Carolina University. She is a member of the Dramatist Guild, ASCAP, and the recipient of the Dramatist Guild's uh, Foundation Grant in 2020. Visit lizettegladowski.com for more. This uh, new album is out from uh, Brainstorm Records and Yellow Sound Label. Visit clicomusical.com for more information. We spoke two weeks ago with Lizette joining me from North Carolina. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Lizette Gladowski. Ms. Gladowski, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, just how revolutionary was this this uh, this person, Barb Nicole Clicquot? Oh well, today she's kind of known as the first modern businesswoman, so I'd say pretty revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess in, in those days, in, in 1798 especially, uh, female mm-hmm. business leaders were not a thing, were they? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> what was it about her that drew you? Um, to her and 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 like when was the first time you heard about her say well uh, my writing partner uh richard walter he came up to me one day and he's like i know a show we should write together and i was like okay what is it and he goes do you like the french revolution i said yes do you like (laughs) champagne yes and do you like strong female leads and i said absolutely what is this and so that was my first introduction to the idea in the first place. And then he um, introduced me to this woman. And what, what I find fascinating is that here is the champagne label that everyone knows of. Yeah. And yet so few people know that it even means widow. And so few people know her story. And so her story is kind of intoxicating once you start to do the deep dive and the historical figure she was surrounded by and with and um, – just being introduced to her was kind of mind-opening, and then the more research we did and dove into her life, the more inspiring she got by the second. And I love that she's not um, a stereotypical uh, ingenue. Mm. She uh, she didn't enjoy the finer things of life of the time. She wasn't about the frills and the gowns and the um, marriage and all, all of that. Uh, she, she had a sense of humor. She... Um, she didn't like what the other girls liked or what was appropriate at the time. She had a lot of audacity and um, 
that's really um, exciting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's funny because when, when I saw the the thing that that uh, this was going to be a musical. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd known the brand, I guess, my whole life. I'd seen the labels. Mm-hmm. I'd seen the, the, the box that it comes in um, yeah. and had no idea that the, the, of the people behind it, let alone that there was a, such a, a remarkable, fascinating character. So fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what is it like then when, when, when you and Richard Walter get together and just uh, decide to, to, to work on a musical like this? By the way, had you worked together before? Uh, we ha- we both went to uh, New York University uh, Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at Tisch School of the Arts, and we were paired together as thesis partners. And how that works is when you're a thesis partner, you write a full musical. Mm-hmm. That is your thesis. Um, and so we were paired for that, but we were uh, writing Clico secretly uh, <laughs> um, on the side and then inside. And then- the, the story I want to tell is a story that's... Uh, usually limited in terms of the number of characters, that it might be focused on one character or two characters or three characters. Then basically I just write until I think that the ground that that I wanted to cover or needed to cover has been covered. So some of these short stories are actually quite long stories. Um, there's only a few of them that are 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 you know, comparatively short. Um, And I think that one of the reasons why they are longer stories is that I thought that the characters that I I was writing about, uh, because in part I was writing about people who had lived longer lives, uh, Mm -hmm. that their lives needed to be gone into in a little bit more depth than, say, the stories that I was writing when I was in my 30s. And and um, did you find the process of writing is that is that as enjoyable as it was say when you started your career? I think it's harder. Hmm. Um, I think that I think that the no the more you know about writing, um, the more you worry about doing it well. Uh, when I was younger, I I guess I could sum it up was that I I just wanted to get things out. There were things that I, I felt that I needed to say. I wanted to say them well. Uh, there's no question about that. But I didn't think uh, to the same degree or, or in the same detail about how I was going to say them as I do now. There's a certain reflective quality um, in the stories in this book. And, and I'm curious to know what you might think the, the, the younger reader say a, a male half your age maybe um, who would read this book what you would want them to take away from it I think that what I would want them to take away with it is what you know what my response was to one of your earlier questions when you were when you asked me about what what character did I learn the most about I think that in part I would hope that younger males or 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 females reading these stories what they might take away from it is maybe a better understanding of their own parents of their own fathers um, in terms of the stories that are written 
you know, from the perspective of, of say, men in their 60s or late 50s. Uh, we, we began the interview talking about uh, looking behind us, looking looking in the past. Let, let's look ahead. What are you, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a novel. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't gotten very far into it. I've only got, you know, three or four chapters written, so I don't know um, if it's going to get up on its legs and run or not. Um, I hope it does, but I'm chipping away at that. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a slow writer, so, you know, if, if, if this novel... Uh, takes hold of me, or I take hold of this novel. That's what I envision doing for the next three or four years. Uh, Guy Vanderhaeg, it's been such a, a pleasure to to have uh, talked to you today, and and um, I, I'm enjoying this book a great deal. Congratulations on it. Continued good luck with it. Well, thank you very much. The book is called Daddy Lennon and Other Stories. It's uh, published by McClellan and Stewart. It's author Guy Vanderhaeg. Join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto. I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver at thecommentary.ca. When uh, Emily Urquhart gave birth to her uh, daughter nearly five years ago, she and her husband Andrew noticed that she was the fairest child of them all in the maternity ward. Sadie's uh, snow-white hair and fair skin suggested something magical, but after a series of tests, she was diagnosed with albinism. It's a rare condition, a rare genetic condition that we've uh, talked about on this program in the past in Ms. Urquhart's book. Uh, looks at albinism from the point of view of a mother giving birth to a child with albinism to digging deep into uh, her family's genetic history. She looks at albinism and how it's viewed in Western culture, but more importantly and frighteningly in a country like Tanzania, where those with albinism are hunted and killed for their body parts. She writes about the cultural stigma that those um, suffering from this disability get. The book is called Beyond the Pale, Folklore, Family, and the Mystery of Our Hidden Genes. It's such a compelling read, one that will upset you, but it's uh, definitely a book one ought to read. Emily Urquhart is a writer and folklorist who grew up in southwestern Ontario. She lives in Victoria, British Columbia, where she uh, joins me from now. She has a doctorate in uh, folklore and undergraduate degrees in journalism and art history. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Reader's Digest, Flair, and The Walrus. She's a recipient of a, a National Newspaper Award as well. Her website is at emilyurquhart.ca. The book is published by Harper Avenue, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Please welcome to the Plant on the Line program from Victoria, B.C., Emily Urquhart. Uh, Ms. Urquhart, good morning. Good morning. Th- thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so for, for people that, um, I mean, we all know what folklores are, um, what sort of work does a folklore scholar do? Well, I like to think of folklore as the um, stories that people tell to explain their world. And so as a folklore scholar, I look at uh, these stories that people tell, and I try to understand why they tell them. I look at the root of the stories, and um, I look at, yeah, I guess why, why they're told and what the purpose is behind these stories. And in your, in your scholarly work, did, did you encounter, say, um, folklore is about albin, uh, albinism? Well, not, not uh, before my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. What I did encounter were stories of human differences. Um, so there would be stories of, you know, a colony of people with a certain kind of genetic condition, maybe dwarfism or maybe encephalitis. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know for sure that there would be stories about albinism existent, but mm-hmm. I, I had a feeling 
from the work I had done so far in my in my academic life that that there would be. And so, of course, after my daughter was born, and I began to kind of process what it meant, you know, for her to have this genetic difference. I started to think about those stories, and I wondered if if they existed specifically for albinism. And I discovered that. Not only did they exist, but um, there were quite a few, and they existed sort of throughout time and, and across landscapes. Uh, before we um, go further into the conversation, the words that we ought to use when we're talking about albinism, is it a condition? Is it a disability? How would you, is it a disease? How, how do you refer to it as? Or what do you refer I, to it as? That? I refer to it in a few different ways. Um, I, I think overall I sort of see it as, as just a, a difference. But um, realistically, it is a genetic condition, and um, and it does come with a disability, which is that uh, people with albinism have um, have eyesight near the legally blind mark. So that does um, that does sort of inhibit some of some of what they're able to do, and and therefore there is a disability inherent in in the genetic condition, which is also a human difference. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm really sure. answering that question very succinctly, but I, I think that, that any of, of those work. <laughs> and we, we ought not to refer to people with albinism as albinos. Is that right? Yes. And that's something, of course, I did not know before mm-hmm. my daughter was born. I didn't, I didn't think about any of this at all, of course, sure. before she was born. But, um, yes, I, I'm a proponent of people-first language, meaning putting the person before the condition disability difference. Um, and and also, I guess over the years, uh, people with albinism have uh, heard the term albino, and it's often been derogatory and mm-hmm. used in, in a negative way or a cruel way or as the butt of a joke. And so um, it carries a lot of weight, that word, for a lot of people. And um, it, I hear it all the time because nobody you know, really understands that who isn't part of the albinism community. So I, I'm not offended if somebody uses it in a way that is kind, but I do like to try my best to uh, educate, and, and I myself will use the term person with albinism. Yeah, we don't refer to, the say, the guy down the street as the diabetic or something like that, right? Yes, exactly, no. because that's uh, not who they are. It is maybe a, a component of of who they are, but it isn't all of them. It's not all encompassing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Sadie was born uh, Boxing Day, twenty ten. Um, during your pregnancy, was there anything indicating albinism? Um, and aren't pregnant women supposed to? to aren't they su- subject, I should say, to a number of tests? Yes, um, they they are subject to a number of tests, um, which are all voluntary. I see. Although it it doesn't always seem that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know to check for albinism. It, it's a recessive condition, meaning both parents need to be carriers in order for it to manifest in the child. And there had been no mention of this um, genetic condition in, in my family or in my husband's family, so we wouldn't have known to look for it. It can pass on silently for centuries um, without actually turning up. The gene just keeps going, but it, it doesn't. But no one knows that they have it. So uh, there were no indications in terms of of the, you know, I wouldn't have known to look for it, so I, I wouldn't have known to test for it, I, I guess. See. I mean, there were other tests that you, you do know that are kind of more common, but um, <clears throat> the first time around, anyhow, you, have, you don't know. Right. So, so when, you, when you first saw Sadie, what, what did you think? You know, when I first saw her, I, I just thought she was 
uh, entirely beautiful. Uh, she had a lot of hair, and it was white, and it was it was gorgeous. It wasn't like a color I'd ever seen before, but it didn't trigger any kind of panic for me. I just assumed that it was, you know, a, a part of her, and it made her special, and it made her stand out, and it made her beautiful, but it didn't suggest to me that there was any kind of medical issue. Um, so I was just delighted, of course, as any new mom is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and what, what did Andrew think? Well, uh, he, he, I think, initially maybe thought the same thing, but he is a biologist by training. He has a Ph.D. in biology, and um, so his view on the world is, you know, his, is about the natural order. He, he would look at something and question it in a way that I might question it, too, but I might see stories where he sees um, uh, scientific facts. Mm-hmm. So I think from the beginning, I think he did start, you know, begin to question why her hair was that color when there wasn't anyone in our background who also shared that same, same whiteness. Um, so, and, and then eventually, you know, as the days passed, he, he really began to think that, that there was something going on, something genetic. And, and for you, there were little clues, weren't there, in, in the hospital? I mean, the way people talked to you in the hospital, whether they were doctors or, say, the staff in the hospital, or, or little things that you would hear over here, say, in the hall, say. Yes, well, for me, um, I, I didn't think that there was any medical issue. I did notice that people were coming from across the hospital to see our baby mm. um, because of her, her hair, she had so much hair, and it was white, and they'd never seen a baby like her before. So that was curious, but they weren't showing up at my side to suggest there was a problem or to offer medical services. They were actually just there to look at her mm-hmm. until uh, I, on the second day when my husband went walking with, with our daughter in the hallway, and then nurses, you're not allowed to do that. You have to push them around in these little plastic bassinets with wheels. Um, so they, you know, they're all telling him, go back to the room, and he hears one of them as he's turning to go back to the room, ask, is that baby an albino? And the woman followed him into our room, and then she asked me directly, is, is your baby an albino? And she looked concerned, and I didn't even really understand what albino, I didn't understand what that meant. I thought that she was, you know, being a bit rude and a bit strange, and then although she was wearing nurse's scrubs, she went into the bathroom and she cleaned our bathroom for us and emptied the trash, and I realized that she was a janitor. And so I further dismissed her comments. But the reality was that this uh, janitor was able to diagnose my daughter when none of the medical professionals were able to. So I really should have listened to her. Yeah, and so, so how does that make you feel, having gone through the medical system as you, as you did, having just given birth to a child, and, and you know what you know now? Um, does it leave you disappointed, say? Does it leave you bitter about the way you were treated or, or the, the way that you were handled by, by the medical professionals that you did encounter? No, it doesn't. It, at first, 